Welcome to Roots. We are getting down to our roots in this series. This is going to be all about living a deeply formed life of rhythms and relationships rooted in the way of Jesus. Come on. If we haven't met before, I'm Ashley, and I'm the senior pastor here, like Noah was saying. And we're so glad that you're here for our brand new series kickoff. I want to thank all of our teams who are a part of getting today ready, making it happen. The stage is amazing. Thank you, props team. The stuff in the foyer, root beer floats. Come on, our teams know how to party. I love when everybody brings their gifts to change the world. So in this series, we're going to talk about being present and enjoying our lives. We're going to talk about getting the most out of every moment. We're going to look at how our family of origin shaped us and how Jesus reshapes us. We're going to look at singleness and marriage and parenting, emotional and sexual wholeness. I know I just said sex in church. Some of you are like, and others of you are like, when are we talking about that? I just want to write it on the calendar real quick. We want Jesus involved in every part of our lives because it's better when we invite him into it. Come on. There's nothing off limits to him. Paul describes it like this in Romans 12:1. He says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Take your whole life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. I know you might have heard, you know, being good enough is the best thing you can do for him. Doing all the right things is the best thing you can do for him. But that's not the truth. The truth is we embrace what God has done. We embrace Jesus. It's the best thing we can do for him. All right, it says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture. You fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you, which is to embrace what he's done and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Come on, I love that. So it's saying, take your life, your sleeping life, which is like eight hours, give or take, your eating life, maybe two hours of your day if you really enjoy your meals, your going to work life, another eight to 10 hours, maybe your commute, mine's like two hours of the day, your walking around life, another two hours, maybe go to the gym or get groceries or go to the coffee shop and take that last four hours of leisure time, take the whole 24 hours, and offer it to God. And that simply just means invite him into it. Embrace what he has done. Because we tend to compartmentalize our lives. We say, God, you can have this five minutes here in the morning, or this 20 minutes at lunch, or Sunday mornings. You can have a whole hour, and I'll have the rest of it. You can have this part, and I'll be in charge of everything else. And we have a God box, and we have a work box, and an entertainment box, and a friend's box, and a family box, and we live our life so disjointed. And a lot of the parts of our lives, they don't look that much different than before we knew Jesus because we've retained control. We love control. But if we will learn to hold on to our lives loosely, to take ownership for our lives, but also to hand it over to Jesus, to hand the keys to him and trust him, then he'll bring out the best in us as we become more like Jesus. Holding on loosely is a term that they use in tennis. 
I don't know if there's any tennis players in the room, but basically you don't want to hold on to your racket too tight. If your grip is too tight, when you hit the ball, it won't go very far. And on the opposite, I mean, if you hold on too loose, your tennis racket will fall right to the ground. So you want to hold on loosely. And that's what we do with our lives. We say, God, I take ownership of my life and my decisions, but also I trust you with it. I don't have to hold on it too tight. God doesn't look at our lives in the fractured way we do. He looks at our whole lives. He looks at everything. He doesn't say, oh, there's your spiritual life and your non-spiritual life. No, no, it all matters to him. And he wants to be involved in every part because he cares about us. He cares about every little detail. He's interested in our whole being. And I love that. That makes me feel so loved. But he can't bless what we don't surrender to him. Whether it's our time or our finances or our gifts or anything else, if we hold on to it, he can't bless it. Makes me think about Jesus and the story of how he fed the 5,000. And the, the disciples come to him and they're like, we don't have any food to feed all these people except for this one little boy's lunch. And the little boy surrenders it to Jesus. And Jesus blesses it and multiplies it to feed everyone. I love that. He surrendered that one little bit. And look what Jesus did with it. I read a quote this week from John Mark Comer. It says, God is involved in your story to the degree that you open up your life to his authorship. He's involved in your story to the degree that you open up your life to his authorship. And as we open up our lives to him, he shows us what it's like to really live. He helps us to recover our lives in the way that he intended them to be. He shows us who he created us to be. He comforts us in our time of need. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble. With him, life is an adventure. He has a better vantage point. He has more resources, greater wisdom, and more power than we do. Come on. So why not take our whole life and place it before him as an offering. Why not embrace what he's done? Instead of letting culture dictate who we become because it's just what we've always known, why not bring the culture of heaven to earth through our lives? You know, in our society, being busy is a badge and we wear it with pride. Productivity is everything. If your schedule isn't packed every second of every day, then you're just not hustling enough. And we do our best to make this work. But what if being busy is killing us? The Chinese pictograph for being busy is two pictures. The first picture is our heart and soul. And the other picture is killing. The Chinese know that busyness is killing our souls. And we don't know it because this is normal. I mean, everybody does it. During this series, we're going to reclaim our lives. We're going to experience the more and better life that Jesus has for us. Come on. We love being busy, but it steals our sleep. It steals from our relationships. It steals from our peace. Americans spend $250 billion a year on pres prescription drugs. Cholesterol drugs are the top of the list, followed by antidepressants. We're stressed and depressed with no end in sight. We survive from week to week and repeat but God empowers us to be blessed and at rest through Jesus. He empowers us to thrive. Stress and depression, they're symptoms. They're not who we are. I know it might feel like it, but it's not who we are. You are not created to live in them. 
And instead of treating the symptom at the surface, we want to go beneath the surface to the root. And we want to reroute our roots in the way of Jesus. Colossians 2.7 says, Let your roots grow down into him and draw up nourishment from him. So we get rooted in him and he fuels us. He nourishes us. He sustains us. We connect to him. We rest to him in him. And he helps us love people better. He gives us peace. He gives us joy. He gives us strength, integrity, faithfulness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. He gives us so many good things when we source from him. But in order to do that, we want to look back at the Garden of Eden and God's original design for mankind. It's Genesis 1.27. It says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So it says God created us in his image. And then he blessed us. And he gave us a dual purpose. He gave us a job. He gave us work to do. He put us in the garden and he said, be fruitful and fill the earth. Which if you're parents, you want to steward your kids well. You want to invest in them, love them, train them, and one day release them. And second, subdue the earth. Rule over the other creatures. Harness the power of the raw materials that God has given us. And make something of the world around you. Two purposes. Fruitful and subdue. He gave us a ton of resources. Genesis 2.8 tells us all about him. It says, The Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden. There he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. So basically he's listing all these resources. There's a garden. There's all kinds of trees. You can use the wood for building. You can eat the fruit. There's a river that can power things. There's fish in the water. There's natural minerals. Plus there's the sun and the soil and so much more. God created this paradise with so many resources. And Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So more in our purpose of filling the earth and subduing it. Now he says, work it and take care of it. Work it is the Hebrew word that's abad. It also means to serve people. To work means to serve people. And then it also means to worship God. So with this, our work isn't just something we do. It's how we serve people, and it's how we worship God. It's not just a four-letter bad word, the way we use work. No, no, it's good. We were put on this earth to serve other people and worship God. Frederick Buechner says, Work is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I just want to reframe how we look at work. It's not a mistake or an accident that you are where you are. You were created with something that the world around you needs. So you work it, and then you take care of it. And the word for take care of it there is shemar, which means to cultivate it, to draw out its potential. So we get a definition of our purpose here to serve people, worship God, and harness the world's potential through work. 
one more uh, quote about work from Tim Keller. It says, rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. That's work. It helps the world thrive. In our culture, we work to live. We say things like, can't wait for the weekend. We write songs, everybody's working for the weekend. Yeah. We work for vacation. But God created us to live, to work. Not a life where we can't wait to leave work, to clock out, to be done where we dread our lives. Not a life where we feel guilty when we're at home or maybe guilty when we're at work. But a life that's wholly complete, a life to the fullest where we say, I love my weekends and I love my Mondays and my Tuesdays and my Wednesdays. I love my whole week. Come on. I love my home life and I love my work life. I love my whole eating, sleeping, going to work and walking around life. I love that God lets us choose our work. We get to use the gifts that he's given us and the passions that he's put inside of us to serve the world around us and worship him. But some of us hate what we do because we're trying to be something that we're not. We're trying to be something other than who we were created to be. We think of our children, we tell kids, you can be whatever you want to be. If you work hard, if you believe in yourself, you can be anything. I feel like we do kids a disservice when we say that because you can be anything. But if you're an introvert and you go into acting, you're going to hate it. If you're a leader and you work all day by yourself in a lab, you're going to feel unfulfilled. If you go to school to be a doctor, but your passion is woodworking, then you'll push through the work week so you can get to the weekend. That's not how you were created to live. King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said in Ecclesiastes 5.18, I've seen what's best for people here on earth. They should eat and drink and enjoy their work because the life God has given them on earth is short. They do not worry about how short life is because God keeps them busy with what they love to do. You can enjoy your work and love what you do. That's not to say that you should avoid work until you can do the perfect thing that you love doing. When I was in college, I worked at the police academy at our university, not because I'm interested in law enforcement. I mean, it's great, but I did that job as a work-study job to pay for my tuition. Sometimes you'll work a few jobs before you discover what excites you. That's okay. Worship God through your work, serve people, and harness the world's potential. Embrace the gift of human limitations. Embrace the fact that you're not good at everything. We're not all good at everything, but we are good at some things. The more you embrace what you're good at and admit what you're bad at, the freer you become. There's less pressure on you because you have certain skills and passions and wiring that no one else has. You can be anything, but no one can be you. You can be anything, but no one else can be you. So yeah, you can be whatever you wanna be. You can try real hard. But be you. Encourage your kids the gifts that you see in them. Encourage them in who they are, to be themselves. Encourage their uniqueness. Ben Franklin said, Jack of all trades, master of one. Master of one. I know you've probably heard it as master of none. We take that to mean, oh, Ben Franklin's saying, be well-rounded, jack of all trades, master of none. Just, you know, as long as you do lots of things half-heartedly, then you'll be good. And we use it as an excuse not to be good at anything. But at the end of the day, we all have one thing that we're really good at and that fulfills us. Ben Franklin was saying to us, Master One, 
Learn the other stuff, but master one. There are things that you can do that no one else can. And maybe it's not what you thought you would be doing, but you find joy and you find purpose and you find peace in it. And it's not so much a job title as it is a calling, as it's you being called out on your potential to make an impact in your world. And it could happen in multiple, multiple roles. Uh, before I was a pastor, I was a teacher. I taught middle schoolers. Um, I was a stay-at-home mom. I was a director of operations at a church leading a staff team. But what was I really doing? What I'm really good at, my one thing, is equipping and empowering people. It's setting up other people to win, setting up people to succeed. And that looks like a lot of different things at times, but that's the one thing that really fuels me. And it could be middle schoolers, or it could be a staff team, or it could be my kids. But that's who I am. My husband, he's had several different job titles. He's been a surveyor, a project manager, a warehouse supervisor. I had to ask him because I couldn't remember all the things that he's done. A distribution center manager, a shift supervisor, materials manager, assistant plant manager. What do all those things have in common? He does one thing well. It's creating a stable environment for other people to thrive. And he doesn't just do it at work. He brings that gift to church where he's part of a volunteer team and he creates an environment for other people. I was looking here just at our band and you know how they worship God and use their gifts to serve the church. And I was thinking they use what they're already gifted with in other areas of life and they bring them here to build God's church. I love how Josh, he's a barber by day and he helps people to become their best self. And he's a worship leader on Sundays where he helps us to become our best selves by being in God's presence. And I love that. Whatever you're good at, you can use it in so many different ways. So I want to ask you, if you dumb down what you're good at in its simplest form, how would you describe yourself? Maybe you're good at making things with your hands, helping people feel like they're best, good at connecting people. Like when you meet someone, you're like, oh my gosh, I got to introduce you to 10 other people because that's your gift. Maybe you're good at solving problems or doing things with numbers. Not everybody's good with numbers. We all have a purpose, and our purpose is not a position. Our purpose is who we are. And each of us has one thing where we have moments of, I was born for this. One thing where we're like, oh my gosh, this is who I am. I love this. And it's okay, don't get freaked out if you haven't discovered it yet for your life. There's still time. It takes time to pull that potential out of you and to draw it out. Get excited that you get to discover it. It's exciting. No matter what you do, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, do it all to the glory of God. Do it to showcase God's presence. Do it to show people his importance. Do it to draw people to him. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. How does a star proclaim God's glory? Does it try? No, it just is. A star's purpose is to shine bright. And God's glory is displayed through it. His glory is everywhere. It's in the sunrise. It's in your baby's laugh. It's in the colors of a peacock's tail or a tiger's stripes. It's in an elephant's size. Why do we go to the zoo? To look at God's glory. In the same way, we are his masterpieces created to bring God glory by being who he made us to be. So whether you're a mechanic or an attorney, or a sanitation worker, or a stay-at-home parent, or a doctor. Whatever you do, glorify God in how you work. Give 
Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with your whole being, for the Lord and not for men, because you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward. It's the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you do, be wholehearted and excellent for God's glory as you enjoy your work. Pour your whole self into it and give God the credit. That's the first part of today's talk. Enjoy your work. And the second part is to embrace God's rhythm of rest. Because no matter how much you love what you do and how much it fuels you, by the end of the week, you're tired. I mean, you could be feeling it right now, even if you got a really good night's sleep where you just are sitting down and you're like, my body is tired. My cells are exhausted. That's because you're not a machine. You can't work for seven days for weeks on end. I mean, technically you can if you want to, but it's not how you are designed to work. And it's not that effective as we're gonna see in just a second. All of creation has a rhythm of work and rest. For the soil to be replenished, it has to be dormant for a season. If you think about the Dust Bowl, how we overfarmed the land and there was no nutrients left and the soil just blew away. It has to lie dormant. And the same is true of people. When we don't rest, our bodies get fatigued. So what do we do? We drink more coffee and get some Red Bull. Our minds are fatigued. We have so much information coming at us faster than we can process it, and we can't focus. Our souls are fatigued. We don't have margin to spend time with God. When we don't rest, our immune system gets worn down. We have low energy. We feel empty. Our relationships are starving. We have tension and stress and anxiety and depression. We have to know that we're not God. I know it's shocking, right? You're not God. Neither am I. We're limited. We have emotional capacity, relational capacity, physical capacity, mental capacity. God is the one who can be at two places at one time, not you. He's the one who can be all things to all people, not us. He's the one who never sleeps. We need sleep. God loves us and he gives us rest. Psalm 127.2 says, it's useless to rise early and go to bed late and work your worried fingers to the bone. Don't you know he enjoys giving rest to those he loves? He enjoys giving us rest. That means you don't have to work yourself to death. God is your provider. Your work is not your provider and your work is not your God. And as with God's grace, which we talked about our whole last series, rest is not a reward. It's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. It's something that God gives us. Exodus 16, 29, God says to Moses, the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. Before he gave him the law, he said, the Sabbath is a gift. And Sabbath means to stop, to cease, to, to be complete and to celebrate. In the New Testament, Jesus reiterated in Mark 2, 27, he said, the Sabbath was made for man. It's a gift that was made for us. It's a gift that happens every seven days 52 times a year. It's a day to rest from our work and rest in God's sufficiency. It's a day we don't have to prove our worth by producing. We don't have to be the best, earn the best, do the most. We can rest in knowing that God loves us because of who we are, because of our relationship with Jesus, not because of what we do. It's a day to refuel and refocus for the rest of the week. We don't work so we can earn rest. We rest because God says to here it is, Exodus 28. He says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. The Sabbath has been a gift from the start of creation. God's not going to punish you if you don't rest, but you'll miss out. You can skip it, but why would you want to? You can ignore it, like all the things that God says will make our lives successful, but how's that working out for you? You can reject it, but why not receive this free gift? God gave the Israelites this commandment when they had just come out of slavery in Egypt, and he's battling a lot of mindsets that they have. Slaves don't get to rest. They're a commodity. They work until they die. And no matter how much you produce for Pharaoh, it's never enough. Sabbath reminds us we're not slaves to work either. We're children of God. We're children who rest on the seventh day because it's blessed. In the Bible, like I said, anything that's blessed is multiplied. So the Sabbath, it's blessed. It multiplies our energy. It gives us creativity. It multiplies our clarity, our vision, our strength, our optimism, and our hope. When you give your time to God, he always gives more back to you. The Sabbath is also holy. It says holy means set apart. It means dedicated to God. Holy means it's a day for worship, a day to enjoy God's goodness all around you, a day to celebrate your limits that you're not God, a day to embrace our limits, to have balance in our lives. The Sabbath is an expression of faith. It takes faith to stop your work. It takes faith to say, I am not God, and it's okay. It's not dependent on our readiness to stop, not dependent on us having the house clean and the projects done and the whole work list finished. Can I tell you a secret? Our work is never done. It's never done. And if you can make peace with that fact, oh man, your life will change. There's always more work to do. When we lie down at night, we think of 50 things to add to the to-do list. When we sit down on the couch to rest, man, you see something you need to clean up. Jesus didn't wait for everyone to be healed before he rested. He didn't wait for the work to be finished when he was with crowds of people. He got away to rest. Luke 5.15 says, The news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came near to him, came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. There is still work to be done. There are still probably people like, Jesus, I was the next in line. Uh, hello. Uh, Jesus, what about those people over there? Don't you care about them? No, no, no. Jesus was like, there's a time to rest. And just like Jesus, we don't rest on the seventh day because we're finished. We rest because it's time to stop. Because our identity doesn't have to be in what we do. It's rooted in who we are because of Jesus. Come on. Psalm 62.1 says, My soul finds rest in God alone. My soul, that's my mind, will, and emotions. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. Man, that verse is so life-giving. Jesus said, it is finished at the cross. He fulfilled the whole law. He did all the work. And he completed the work of living perfectly so that we can find rest for our souls in him. We don't have to earn. We don't have to deserve. We can find rest for our souls and rest for our bodies. And he invites us into a better way of life. Taking a Sabbath day makes all the other days different. It makes all seven days different. Because when you rest... You actually work better. There were some Christians on the Oregon Trail back in the day. And have you guys ever played the Oregon Trail game? 
remember playing it as a kid. Yes, it's like, you have dysentery. It's like, oh gosh, that's depressing. <laughs> we played it in middle school on the very first computers our school ever had. Makes me feel old. All right, so they're on the Oregon Trail and it's starting to be fall and they're like, okay, we're not gonna get there in time. So half the party was like, we're gonna just push through. We'll power through, we'll travel seven days, we'll push, 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 we'll get there and then we'll rest. And isn't that how most of us live our lives? But the other half of the group was like, no, 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 this rest thing has been working out for us so far and we trust God. So we're just gonna keep doing six days of travel, one day of rest and we'll see you there. So the people who are resting on the seventh day get to Oregon and the other people are not there. They get there weeks before the people who were traveling seven days a week because these people were rested. They were more effective in their travel. Their animals were rested. They were rested. It was better. What if you've been living your whole life maxed out when you could be enjoying the gift of rest and you could be more effective at the same time? Our willingness to rest depends on what we believe we'll find there. Some of us think rest is just taking a nap. It's not. A Sabbath is life-giving. It's a weekly holiday, kind of like Christmas. You know, you think about Christmas, you plan for Christmas, you plan your food ahead, you plan your activities ahead, you get excited about it, you look forward to it. It's the same with the Sabbath. You can look forward to it once a week. Clean your house before it so you can truly rest. Prep your food. Respond to your messages. Plan what you're going to do. Maybe set up coffee with a friend. Plan to go on a walk or to the park. Buy a book that you want to read. It's not the same thing as a day off. On a day off, you don't work for your employer, but you still probably work. Like you do your laundry, you remodel the house, you mow the lawn, you pay the bills, you shop for groceries, you cook, clean, organize, run errands, take care of the kids. That sounds like a lot of work. It is. That's the work of our lives. That's not resting. The seventh day is a day for rest and worship. So when you're thinking about it, run everything through that filter. Is it rest? Is it life-giving? Is it refueling? Is it worship? Is it focused on God? Am I enjoying my relationship with him? And I, am I spending time in his presence? Is it rest? And is it worship? Don't make it legalistic or religious. Don't make it about rules. Don't make it a have to, because it's not. Don't be like, oh, I can't do anything today. It's the Sabbath. Don't be weird and religious. No, no, no. It's a good thing. I get to enjoy the gift of the Sabbath. When we got our house, our oven has this little thing on it that's like a Sabbath setting. So I could set my oven ahead if I wanted to. But you know what? I'm just going to press the button when I need to go ahead and cook on the seventh day. It's okay. Rest in the relationship you have with God. Craft it into something that you look forward to. Your day of rest is gonna look different than the person next to you because you're different people. Sabbath is a verb, and that means it's something you do, and it's something that you can get better at. Like anything you do, you start where you're at, and you figure out what works for you. You wanna create an experience that serves your family. You can start with 12 hours, if 24 hours seems like a lot to you. But set a date for when you wanna do it. That's what my team and I did earlier this year, and we made it happen this month. I talked about this subject a little bit last year. It was March of 2021. And some of us were like, oh my gosh, I need to do that. And here we are 18 months later, and we're like, uh, I still need to do that. I want to encourage you. Don't feel condemnation, but set a date today and make it happen. 
Your Sabbath will also shift depending on your season of life. It's different when you have small children than when you have an empty nest. It's different when you're single than when you're married. It might feel weird when you get started. It might even feel frustrating like, oh, what do I do? That's okay. You're learning how to enjoy your creator and his creation. It's a day to enjoy your blessings, your family, all of creation. Enjoy your life. It's a day when God restores your soul. He restores your emotional health, your joy, and your peace. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Sabbath is a day that he restores us to his original intent. It's a day to slow down. It's a day to be more available to your family and to God. It's a day to disconnect from your devices and reconnect to God and reconnect to people. Maybe even shut off your phone. I know. Or put it on do not disturb. I was talking to my husband about this the other day. I'm like, let's just pretend it's like 1990 and we don't have phones. The Sabbath is a day to rest from the thought of work, from planning work, from agendas and to-do lists, a day to rest from talking about problems. We have six other days to do that. It's a day to enjoy life, to enjoy the fruit of your work. It's not a day to buy or sell things or make a list of all your wants and needs. No, it's a day to be satisfied and grateful for what you have. I mean, feel free to go out and eat at a restaurant. You can spend money on that. But it's a day to say, wow, God, I love what you've given me. I love my life. When do you Sabbath? Well, it's a 24-hour period. It's a sacred time that you want to guard at the same time each week so you can have a rhythm in your life. And it might be different days for different people. Saturday night through Sunday night works best for most of us because Sunday's the day we come to church. It's the day we worship together. Friday to Saturday might work best if you're really busy on Sunday and you have like tons of kids' sports and you just can't rest. Any day during the week for people who have non-traditional work schedules is fine as long as you create that rhythm. Make sure to Sabbath with your spouse. Try to find a time when both of you can do it together so it can bring you closer. And what do we do on the Sabbath? Like we said earlier, we rest and we worship. We stop working and we rest. We stop working and we worship God. We slow down and enjoy everything that he's given to us. We enjoy our relationships. We enjoy the fruit of our labors. We enjoy his creation and we enjoy him. And what could it look like? Is it like, I'm just worshiping God the whole day? Maybe, but probably not. It could look like eating a special meal. My family and I just started doing this thing where we have steak on our Sabbath. It's really great. It could be enjoying a bubble bath. It could be a workout or going for a walk. It could be a bike ride, sitting in the sun, taking a nap, reading books, journaling what you're thankful for, reading your Bible, praying, singing or having meaningful conversations. If you're married, maybe you wanna get a couple's massage or go for a drive. Maybe you wanna make out and maybe see where that leads. You're married. If you have a young family, have some special toys that your kids can look forward to playing with on the Sabbath. Read a kid's Bible story with them, take them to the park, go see a movie together, go to the zoo. My kids were saying the other day, can we do this every week? I'm like, yes, it happens every week. They're loving it. 
uh, as we were playing together. It was like 11 a.m. My son's like, I just can't think of any other thing to play. We've already played everything I've ever wanted to play. Enjoy your family. Single people, make art. Explore a museum. Meet up with friends. Go for a hike. If you have teenagers, you sleep in and let them sleep in. Limit your screen time. Enjoy your teen's hobbies. Ask them intentional questions to get to know their soul. Ask them, what was the hardest part of your week? What was the best part? Where did you see God this week? If you have an empty nest, host a dinner. Take up a hobby together or go on a day trip. Isaiah 58, 13 says, If you treat the Sabbath as a day of joy, God's holy day as a celebration, if you honor it by refusing business as usual, making money, running here and there, then you'll be free to enjoy God. I'll make you ride high and soar above it all. If you'll choose to make the Sabbath a part of your working and resting life, you'll enjoy God. And that's what you were created for. You'll enjoy your relationship with him and you'll soar far above everything that's weighing you down. You'll be ready to face your life the other six days with renewed purpose and vision and strength and a sense of God's presence 